0: Prodigal is one of the great stories that Jesus gave us. We've been spending a lot of time with it, and uh, we're just going to jump in here in the 15th chapter, try to cover quickly as much as possible to get us up to where we need to go, but again, not wanting to assume that everybody understands the story that Jesus told or has a familiarity with it. Jesus was talking about lost things, and he tells the story about a, a, a son who came to his father and asked his father for his inheritance because he wanted to leave home. He saw it as a place of, of confinement and he wanted to live and he wanted to, to do what he felt he needed to do to enjoy life. And so he, the implication is demanded his money and his father gave it to him. And the picture is of, some, of someone who thinks he knows and goes to a far country and in that far country, in that place away. He ends up having uh, a great time initially. He has friends, money in his pockets. He's enjoying life. He's partying everywhere. That's the picture that Jesus gives. And Jesus says, but then something happened. He he ran out of money and his friends were harder to find. And then a famine hits. We talked about an economic downturn that occurs. He couldn't find any work. He ends up He ends up with nothing. Maybe he used up all his goodwill, but the bottom line is he had nowhere to turn. He he can't find a job. He's a picture of a a desperate man. And finally, he gets hired on to feed pigs. And for the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to at that time, it would have been the picture of someone who had hit rock bottom. And the picture of the boy envying the very pigs that he was feeding because he was so hungry, is the picture that Jesus gives us. Finally, he says that something happened in his heart. Maybe his need got greater than his pride. Pride has a way of keeping us from doing the things we should do. Pride has a way of keeping us from returning home, going back to God. But he finally got to a point of brokenness where he just said, you know what, I've got nothing to lose, I'm going back home. I'm going to go back home. And that brings us to the 17th verse, which is in the handout. He says, but when he came to himself, he said, you know what? How many of my father's hired servants are treated well? And they have bread enough and to spare, And here I am perishing, dying of hunger. I'm just going to go home. And I'm going to, and this is what he says. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my father. And, and I know I told him things before I left. And I know I've spent everything. And I was so proud. But I'm going to tell him, father, I've sinned. I, I was wrong. And I've hurt you, and I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. God knows. He, he's my witness. I, and then he says, and I'll tell him this. I'll tell him I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not expecting to be restored. He says, and then I'll ask him something. I'll just ask him if I can be hired on as a servant. And the word there for servant, we talked about this last week, was not a servant who maybe would have been attached. There were different kinds of words for servants, and, and there were different kinds of servants in Jesus' day. Some of them were attached to households, and were almost extended parts of the family. They were part of the community. But a hired servant was a day laborer. It was someone who could be dismissed. There was no, basically what he was saying was, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna ask him for a job after I acknowledge what I've done. And then I'm not gonna assume anything. I'm gonna, in fact, what I'm gonna assume is, is, is only that uh, there's enough goodness in him to let me work. And I'm not gonna expect anything permanent. Uh, all I wanna know is if I could just get a job with." with no sense of, uh, really, the, the, you get the sense of entitlement is gone. And so Jesus says, and so he decided that he would go home, and that would be what he would say. And as he made his way back home, we talked about the journey back to where we're supposed to be and how hard that can be and how much courage it often takes to start returning to where we're supposed to be getting free of things and starting to make that walk and maybe it was a long journey perhaps along the way he had a lot of second doubts about whether it was worth it whether he could make it but Jesus says in the story that finally he got near, near home and the beautiful picture that Jesus gives us is of the father and truly the parable is as much about the father father's love as it is about the lostness of his son. period as we'll see in fact, the center of the story is all about the father's love. It's the kind of love Jesus said that when the father saw him, Jesus said the father saw him when he was afar off, and he had compassion on him. Remember, we talked about the picture of the old man running and how he would have pulled up his robes, and how it was a picture of a, of an old father running to his son as, "Where is your dignity?" It was a throwing aside of his dignity as lost. In his love. And he says when he gets to his boy, he, he puts himself, he, the phrase there, he falls on his neck. That The idea of just, in just covers him. And he, and he says, you're my son, you come home. And he kisses, the Jesus says that he fell on him, he runs to him, he kisses him. He starts kissing him and telling him how much I love you and how much I've missed you. And, he, and he's so happy. And the boy says, Father, and he starts his, his, he starts his speech, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And He can't even get his request out when the father says, I don't want to hear anymore. So he calls his servants and he says, remember, bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the royal sandals, right? Bring out the shoes for my son who was dead. He's alive. I'm telling you, he who was lost is found. We're going to rejoice. We're going to have a party. You get that? You get that meal ready? We're going to have a feast. We're going to make merry. We're going to to have the time of our life right now. Why? Because the one who was dead to me is alive again. And that was the story. And Jesus ends verse 24 by saying, and they began to rejoice. They began to be merry. They began to celebrate. And that would have been a great way to end the story. And it was a fitting ending. And it would have captured so much. And it does. And yet the amazing thing is right right when Jesus ends it, as we'll see in in the next few weeks, he decides to add another piece to it. And that piece is also compelling in an entirely different way. But let me just suggest what it tells us is that we can be lost and never leave home. But prodigal story, the parable, again, we talked about this as well. When someone throws a party for us, we really don't have the right to walk around beating ourselves down with our head on the ground. We We need to be okay. We need to accept the blessing. And part of, part of what we were sharing is how, how sometimes a lot of us have a hard time really living in our forgiveness. And like Prodigal, we might want to say, Well, shouldn't I do something? I, you can't throw a party for me. And that's the whole point of it. It's not about what we earned, it's, not, it's about the grace of God. That's what Jesus. Remember, okay, the reason he gave these, this story, in fact, it was the third piece of two other smaller stories that were attached to the front end of it, he had been being criticized. People were saying, in this case, it was the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were saying, you know what, what are you doing? You're hanging out with people who are notoriously bad. You're engaging them in genuine conversation. You're interacting with the publicans and the sinners. That was the group of outsiders that they had, felt had by their own choice, put themselves out of the circle of God's concern. And so they said to Jesus, what are you doing? You're setting a bad example. How do you call yourself a holy, a holy teacher, a rabbi, from a prophet of God, when you are clearly disconnecting with the intention of the scriptures, you surely know that, that the hand would you know, in their own way, they were saying, if you would, that which would be clean cannot be itself unclean. What are you, the example you are setting, you're gonna hurt people? Have you never read the scriptures, that the, the companions that one keeps, the interaction, the fellowship that one engages in, determines in many ways who we are? And it was like Jesus said, I understand that, but let me tell you, there's a greater principle at stake here, and that is this, God loves people who are lost. And instead of giving them propositions, he gives them stories. And he says, let me tell you something. Let me, try to, let me try to give you a picture of how God feels. And he says, and that's when he starts with, which of you, there was a shepherd who had lost sheep. And then he goes to the woman who had lost her coin. And then finally he comes to the father who had lost his son. And he says, don't ever freak. Basically what he's saying is don't ever assume that God gives up on people. And then he writes them off. His heart beats for recovery. And that's a bigger issue. That's the driver. And that was the reason he gave the story. It's a story really, it has so many pieces to it. One of the amazing themes, besides living in the joy of being forgiven, has to do with coming home. And home being a place where we really find ourselves for who we are in the eyes of God. Not on the basis of the culture, not on the basis of our upbringing, but on who God says we are. And how did he teach us? How did Jesus talk about finding ourselves, coming home, finding our peace and our identity in God? This is all about coming home. It's about belonging. It's about, it's about finding ourselves not in the shifting uh, whims of what we're trying to be sold all the time, you know the bill of goods that is constantly being placed before us about how we're supposed to look and how we're supposed to age and what, we're, what success is. Jesus says, don't you get lost in that stuff. You, you remember, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and love people who God's placed in your life. Love others as yourself. You know, these are the greatest things in the eyes of God. The other things we'll leave behind. He was constantly saying, God cares about people. Now, that brings us to another. The the message is called Life Story. It's about prodigal, his life. It's about what it meant, what Jesus was trying to say, how he wants to bring life to people. It's also about, we've been looking at a painting. And so, some of us have, at different times in the past weeks, we've brought up, it's, it's it's sort of been all over our discussion, interwoven has been this idea of Rembrandt's rendering of this story from the scriptures, and how Rembrandt, the painter, engaged the parable of the prodigal in a very unique way. It's interesting because his picture, his painting, actually speaks about coming home. And you'll see it. it. It just has this sense of being welcomed back. Now, he was born in 1606, so that's about 401 years ago. One of the amazing things about Rembrandt's life, because in a way I'm going to try to suggest that part of why he created what he created was because of how he, what happened in his life. So if, give me a moment. We're going to take a little, little trail, prodigal trail. Rembrandt was like a lot of people who achieved success early in, his life, in their lives. That is a great thing, and it also can be a damaging thing because you have a hard thing to live up to. And, there, and one of the things about achieving things that's, that's scary, and why a lot of people back off from even trying, is because if you achieve it, how do you how do you keep doing it? And a lot of people who once felt pretty passionate about life are so afraid of losing something that they're they're living in a fear of kind of hold on to something, and so in a way, the blessing became a curse. Now, I'm not saying that happened with Rembrandt, but it is possible because at the age of 19, he had this meteoric rise in popularity. he would be like somebody all of a sudden coming onto the scene in Holland, and all of a sudden, in the midst of these great painters, he emerges as this extraordinarily gifted painter. And at the age of 19, he already has his own art studio. Many people are interested in his work. People are singing his praises. He is being noticed by the elites. He has money flowing in. He's the picture of a success very early. And what happens is through the 20, his 20s, he, he just lives it up. In fact, when you study his a little bit about his life, you realize that at that point, he, as a celebrated artist, many of the accounts suggest that he was brash, he was self-confident, he was sensual, he was arrogant, he was money hungry. Um, the picture of him is as a spender. In fact, one of the paintings he makes around prodigal, I remember, we, we looked at this before a couple of weeks ago at the age of 30, which would have been his prime in some of his prime years. You remember, he's on top of the world. He puts himself in the brothel as prodigal in the far country. He paints himself there. And he is prodigal. And it's like he's saying, look, this is this, he's almost inviting us to look at him in a way. And to see that at some level he's part of who he is as a person is being captured in his self-portrait, placing himself as prodigal in the brothel at the height. You know, it's hard not to miss the glass lifted high. Right. The glass and and look closely, the glassy eyes of one who's lifted the glass a little too many times. Right. You can see that, too. He captures it. The more you look at the picture, the more you see it. He's got a lady on his lap, he's got his curls, he's got the outlandish clothes, the flamboyance. He is the bon vivant artist, right, Um, in his prime. His future is bright. He's a man with flair, prestige. All the accoutrements of success are his. Money, what is money? He spends it as fast as he gets it. Why? Because it's to live with. And then something happens to him. Things turn almost like prodigal. I put this in your handout. It's called Rembrandt's Demise. And I think it, it helps us, it illuminates the painting. Over a span of about eight years, you can see this, I put this in a the, in the section right next to the passage of scriptures there. It says, over a span of about eight years, from 1635 to 1642, Rembrandt's world began to crumble. Uh, during that period, three of his children, his eldest son, his two daughters, you know, they both, they died. His wife dies. And after her death in 1642, he's left with only one child, his nine-month-old son, Titus. I mean, in a, man, in a span of a very short period, his, his entire family died. It was almost died, His wife, his son, his two daughters. And people would see, again, in that period, in contrast to, say, a, like where we are here, especially living in America, but really it's true of almost any Western country, and, and honestly most countries in the world, that things that would have in the past killed people, people died of, of in Jesus' day, people died of amazingly, uh, what we would call today, small things. A fever that could be controlled. A small cut getting infected, being unable to be cured. Uh, an illness that now we would take some medicine for and not even think twice of it. In those days, people died of such things. There, there was always a sense of mortality. In fact, some of the Dutch paintings, some of the techniques they would use periodically, they would place in these settings, they would place a skull somewhere in the picture to remind everybody that life is short, live well. People, So it wasn't uncommon, but it was still tragic. He loses his wife, he loses his three children, he's left with a nine-month-old son, and then on top of his personal pain, in the middle of his success, all of a sudden, his fortune turns. It says here that what followed was a season of relational turmoil, coupled with the decline in his popularity as a painter despite the fact that he was still painting with regularity and recognized by some as a genius finally his spending habits and poor money management skills caused him to declare insolvency notice this and in 1657 and 1658 all of his possessions all of his possessions his own and the other painters works that he had collected the, his large collection of artifacts that he used as props in his paintings and valued greatly. He had come from all over the world, many of them from the Middle East. Everything that he had, his artifacts, and his house in Amsterdam, and his furniture were all auctioned off to pay for his debts. So he is the picture of someone who's lost everything. He's personally lost things. He's Professionally, he has hit bottom, and yet in his 50s, interesting, the biographers point this out, so just stay with me on this. His biographers point this out, that in his 50s, instead of, what you would have expected, and it happened, that somebody would get really bitter and angry about life, he actually started painting even more, and he started to turn a corner of sorts, because you can really see how, in many ways, he was like prodigal in the far country, losing everything. But he starts to change a little bit, and even though he was never completely out of debt, he actually started to grow in certain areas of his life and he changed as a man. In fact, a lot of people commented about how his painting becomes even more profound as he has lived through brokenness, which makes sense to me. And then finally, at the winter period of his life when he's in his 60s is when he creates some of his most lasting and remembered pieces. The Return of the Prodigal was painted by Rembrandt, not in his prime and his youth, not even in his middle middle age. it was painted in his 60s, as a man who had known brokenness very closely. People have talked about that painting a lot because of it. And we can just, again, I, I want to look at it real quickly, but you, can, you get the impression that he embedded a part of himself in that. I mean, look at this. Physically, he resembles more the aged half-blind father, but, but spiritually. In terms of his own personal life, he is coming home, stripped of everything. He, too, is broken, beaten, with nothing. There is, you, even though he may, you know, again, have, have turned some type of a corner, there is that still that sense in which he, he has come to the end of himself. Now, when you look at, a, at this picture, you know, his interpretation of the moment, that the central moment of Jesus' story is one of forgiveness and being blessed. Everything in the picture, again, sends us into the hands. The hands. The light sends us there. All, the, all the, the the onlookers are looking, they're all, it's like looking at the moment of blessing. Even when we have nothing. And and there's something there. Now when you when we look at it, I was thinking about you know, different if you had only the ability to, to write one word to capture what emotion is evoked when you actually sit with that. You know, I would, different people have different reactions. One of the words that comes out is compassion. That love and that pity that is captured there. Others have talked about this being a moment of brokenness, a picture of brokenness. Others say, no, 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 it's, for, it's forgiveness. It's all about forgiveness. Others, others say, no, it's this tenderness would be the word I would use. It's a tender moment. I look at the hands consoling and comforting and there's a force. The hands are gentle but they are also strong. Notice. And Pat, people have debated are the hands pressing down or are they being lifted up? There's genuine difference of opinion there. Are they expressing the blessing of you are blessed or are they expressing be released. You know, there's this release, this lightness. It's, it's, it's left for us. Which one is it? I don't know. Is it the blessing of the hands down? Yes. Is it the blessing of the hands lifted up? Yes. Is it both? Yes. Is it neither? Yes. Stop it. You're confusing me when you say stuff like that. It, 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 the point is, the painting, the painting, as any picture does, it invites us to, to sit and to engage. That's why Jesus told the story. That is why so much of Jesus' best teachings are parables, because a story invites us to imagine and a painting does the same thing in fact in the older in the ages middle ages for example the reason that the cathedrals were frequently decorated with stained glass with with pictures of scenes from the bible is because people couldn't read and so the majority of people couldn't read but they could look at a picture and they could understand a bible story they could understand a cross and what it meant for a savior to die you see it it had to do with uh, visually capturing something. And so when we look at this and we understand that, we see it. Now I'm going to suggest in the minutes that we're closing here with, and I'm just going to throw a couple of thoughts our way, that when we go back and look at the story that Jesus gives us about prodigal, that one of the things it was designed to do, what it was designed to remind us is a picture story of Jesus, of the God who who reaches to a lost humanity, that, that, that Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. He runs to us. He is the God who will reach across, He will lose His dignity for us. He will re- reach across space and time, and He will meet us in our need. That's what Jesus is saying. What drives God is recovery. That's why He sent His only begotten Son. That's why Jesus said, I am here, basically. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. He says to Nicodemus in John 3, for God loves this world, that He would give His only begotten Son. And if we would believe on Him, we would not perish. He says, I, did not, you know, I didn't come to condemn. This world is already broken and it's lost. He says, I've come to save. It's a powerful statement. You know, when I was, when I was a boy, in church, you know, we would sing hymns. We don't do that as much. And uh, sometimes I'll be in the middle of something, and my mind will be somewhere. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, a hymn will come to me—a song that we used to sing in church when I was a boy. Will just all of a sudden be on me, and I'll remember it, and I'll start singing it. You know, I'll start singing it, and I get blessed. You know, and and it's, by the way, it's a reminder. And I know a lot of us here aren't parents, but I'm going to say someday we may be. We may be grandparents, whatever. Point being is this that. There were things planted in me that I'll, I'll never lose them. Even if I run from God. That's what the Bible means when it says, train up a child in the way of the Lord, and when they were old, they will not depart. There's a part of us that can never run from God's love. Even when we've seen hypocrite, hypocrisy, and a part of us has been burned, there's still a part of us that remembers the good seed that was planted, and the Lord who pursues us, whose love pursues us, in spite of what has been done in his name. Now, when we've got that combined with somebody who's lived a life, it becomes a powerful imprint in us. And the, the power of having things planted in our hearts is that we really can never run away from God. I've used this phrase, we're ruined. Because we can never, ever really get away from God. He'll on, he's on our trail. I understand... What that one writer said, Francis Thompson, who had a problem going in and out of his addiction, when he when he wrote the book *The Hound of Heaven*, God is on my trail, relentlessly. His love pursues me, like a like in the night he comes for me. But it's not to hurt me; it's to save me. It's this idea of the relentless God who won't give up on us, even when we choose to go away. It's all. It's, Anyway, one of the hymns that I learned was called called Down From His Glory. And I was thinking about that moment where the prodigal's father, as Jesus tells the story, and how Rembrandt captures him, you know, leaning over, embracing him. And one of the the stanzas says, you know, down from his glory, ever-living story, was it my Lord and Savior came and Jesus was his name. Uh, born in a manger to his own a stranger, right? A man of sorrows, tears, and agony. And then the second, with well, condescension bringing us redemption? That in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight. God, gracious tender, laid aside his splendor. And here's the connect. Stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. Stooping to woo, Rembrandt got it. Stooping, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. And then it says, oh, how I love him, how I adore him. It's beautiful. My breath, my sunshine. This is a heart responding to the love of God. Powerful dynamic when we really get it. The love of God that reaches for us, not only does it reach for us across time and space in the coming of the sun, who gives everything for us, who is scandalized for us. But what it also gives us is a picture of how much God truly wants to bless us. You say, what do you mean? I mean, that's the, and that's the second piece here, is the, God, the story reminded that God longs to bless us. He longs to bless us in our woundedness and in our shame. He longs to say, you are my son and you are my daughter And don't be defined by these. You be defined by who I say you are. And see, some of us, maybe we've never had in our lives, and I realize it's true, some of us have never felt the loving embrace of the Father in that way. But Jesus was painting a picture of God as as a Father who loves us deeply, even and mostly when we don't even deserve it. The grace of God. You receive my blessing. And some of us, you know what, we carry stuff. And that's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor, who are weary and heavy laden. You know, you take my yoke on you. It's costly, yes, but it's, not, but it's the kind of thing that frees you. Learn of me. I'll give you rest, real rest, inside your heart. Not the thing that after you're done with it the next day leaves you worse off than when it, when it, before it happened. And it's, it's not addicting and it won't kill you. It'll bring life and it'll bless others, and it'll be a good thing. It's a good word spoken over our lives. It's the benediction. It's the blessing expressed in the touch. It's the Lord saying, in the midst of all the complexities of life, and there's many of them, you find yourself in me. Last thing I'll say, this story teaches us that we are really about life and not death. This is about resurrection. This is about the one who brings life from the dead. Prodigal's return really is a story of resurrection. Father's declaration, we're going to celebrate because my son who was dead is alive again to me. It's nothing. Short. It's like he's saying, it's nothing short of a miracle. And that's why we're going to celebrate. It's nothing short of a miracle. And that's what Jesus was saying. It's you know, and, and I'm convinced that there are things that God wants to look. God wants to bring, make things alive in us. And you know what? A lot of it's going to depend on how we choose to enter into it. When we're bored, God, God will can't work. But when we actually care, God can do amazing things. What we put in is what we get. You could be lost at home. We're going to see it. Doing all the right things, but bored out of our mind. I'm not doing anything. I'm not in the far country. I know. But where's your heart? God says, don't give me the sacrifice. Don't give me the religious duty. Give me your heart. Some of us returning home, is coming back to the place of brokenness. You say, well, why is brokenness a gift? Because brokenness, a lot of times, is where we get real. And when we get real, God can do things. The breakdown that leads to the breakthrough, and you hear me say it a lot, that leads to the breakout. New things happen. That's why sometimes it's a gift of God to be broken. That in our loss comes the opportunities for a new beginning. And, and, and in fact, the song that we're closing with, it's called, I Will Lift My Eyes. You know what, I was trying, when I first heard this song, Some. it was at the beginning of the year some of you remember that was a kind of rough beginning i had a rough beginning of the year with my cars and it was some stuff that was happening there and here's the deal i was feeling sorry for myself and i remember hearing this song it's the first time i heard it and i felt like i was supposed to and i might see one person's hurt is another means nothing to someone and I do not mean that in a good way. I mean, it's like, well, come on, get over it, All right? But another person, that may hurt us deeply. Some of us, finances aren't an issue. We could have nothing, you know, we get into debt. It's not going to bother it. We're working through it. It's fine. Others of us, it's just, everything's mess, a mess. This person's mad at us at work. So what? That's their issue. Other people, oh, I can't, I don't want to go back. I just gonna have to deal with that stuff. It's so, oh, I can't even sleep. I'm thinking about it. Are they going to like what I did? Are they not going to like it? What's that going to mean? I'm telling you, we all have unique struggles. It's just the way it is. One of the things, I was struggling. I was trying to have a good attitude, but I was, I was, I was battling, not getting depressed. And I remember hearing a song, I will lift up my eyes. I will lift up my eyes to the maker of the mountains. Notice this, that I can't climb. And there were other things swirling about. I will lift up my eyes to the, to the calmer of the ocean's raging sea. And then I love this next line. I will lift up my eyes to the healer of the hurt inside of me. I'll receive my blessing. Beautiful, powerful. And I said, Lord, I lift my eyes to you. Get my eyes off of myself. Be grateful. Be thankful. Help me, Lord. Help speak to me in my brokenness. Speak to me in my concern. Speak to me about my attitudes. Speak to me about what it means to trust you when things aren't going the way I wanted them to. What shows up in my heart. So Lord, I pray that as we get to this place where we are bringing this to a point of closure, and I know we've got stuff waiting for us in the rest of the day, and that's great, but Lord, right now we're here, and let this be a sacred closure for us. Let this be a good thing. And I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, as we close the service out with this psalm that we're referring to. It would just be, be life-giving, that some of us would just take whatever it is that's going on inside, and just like we were laying it at your feet and lifting up our eyes and looking at you, God, and saying, you be our strength. And, and Lord, I, just, I pray for this. I pray that you bless, bless this time as we close. Bless our time of giving, as many of us honor you with our tithes and offerings, Lord, and our gifts. I pray that you'd be honored in all things. In Jesus' name.